Joining us today to talk about developments with vaping in the U.S. is Michelle Minton, Senior Fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C. Michelle, good to see you again today. Thanks for having me on again. So let's talk specifically about the U.S. Um, what is going on now that the Biden administration has got, you know, getting close to 100 days, you know, first 100 days? Yeah, right now, I mean, it's all pretty quiet on the Western Front, so to speak. Uh, but, you know, we have the USPS vape mail ban, which is um, going to go into effect at the end of next month. Uh, and not just USPS, but uh, voluntarily FedEx, UPS. DHL have all chosen to stop shipping tobacco products, including vape products, even if it has no nicotine in it, even if it has no liquid in it. Uh, and we're already seeing vape companies, the biggest vape companies like Juul, tell their customers that after April 21st, I think is the date, they will no longer be taking orders online to ship to people's homes. So, and this is something we all talked about, that this, this idea of how silly it is where you have the most smoking in the U.S. in the populations, uh, you rarely have access to a vape shop. So what you're doing is forcing these people to smoke again because, yeah, there's a gas station down the street for sure or something else. You know, if you're talking about a reservation, how many reservations actually have vapor shops on or nearby? But they certainly have cigarettes available on the reservation. It's it's unfortunate and, and pretty depressing. And hopefully, hopefully there will be some solution either – from the business end, you know, it seems like a pretty great opportunity for some business to just become, you know, we ship vapes or whatever it is, uh, or there'll be some some legislative sanity uh, down the line. We'll just have to hope. I think once we start seeing what I've argued, <clears throat> what I've argued is that this um, by forcing USPS, FedEx, the others to, to no longer ship, you are actually making it easier for people, for criminals online, for illicit dealers of vapor products to ship to kids because there will be more of them because more even adults will start looking for someplace that will ship for someone, for example, who has low mobility and can't get to a vape shop or even go down the street to a gas station. Uh, there'll be more people online willing to just not tell USPS what's in the box. So there'll be, it'll be easier and definitely not checking um, ID. Yeah. You would have to imagine that, you know, entrepreneurs will find a way around this, uh, this can't be very good at all for American vapors. No, yeah, and obviously, you know, of course, the law was predicated on the idea that youth are going onto Jules' website or something and, and getting vape shipped directly to their house when that's not at all, no evidence that that's a primary or even substantial form in which youth are acquiring e-cigarettes. For the most part, they're going onto Facebook, onto Snapchat, getting it from someone at their high school. Uh, social sources are the most popular means of getting it, or they're getting it from their parents, just like the way they used to get cigarettes, or they're stealing them, who knows. But but vapor mail was never really a significant, uh, never really comprised a significant amount of, of vapes getting in the hands of children, not to mention the fact that there are other ways that this could have been dealt with other age verification methods we, you know we live in a modern society you can gamble online you can get alcohol shipped to your house uh you can look at pornography online we have ways to gatekeep youth that are adequate enough that as a society we've decided it is this is better than trying to prohibit something for everybody um you know usps on down the line, all of the private carriers offer some sort of age verification. Now, the problem might be is that they don't actually do it. 
which mm-hmm. is something, you know, even though the vapor companies are paying extra money to somebody like FedEx to get that signature from some, from the adult to get you to look at their ID, they aren't doing it. And I know this because I've had alcohol shipped to my house a lot over the last year and never once have my, has my ID been checked. At least in one instance where the box literally said, you must check ID. It was just dropped at my door with nobody at home. Potentially they didn't even knock to see if an adult was going to answer the door, at least look at my face and know I'm not a 13 year old kid. So if, but, so that might be the problem they're trying to get at, but then that's a problem with the shipping companies, not the vapor companies. Right. And that could be a huge problem for them. And that is an excellent point, Michelle, that if they aren't doing it, for all of the other products that they're supposed to be doing it for because of lazy laziness, it actually costs a lot of money. They see it as COVID a, as well, perhaps COVID as well and so forth. They might just see that the vaping issue is so hot politically or so there are so many very incentivized kind of activists on the anti-vaping side that they recognize that politically it's too much of a business risk to carry vaping at all under these circumstances. I mean, but they're still carrying alcohol and I'm pretty sure you can still get cannabis shipped to your house in certain areas. And we have no problem with this. Uh, it's, it's the laziest lawmaking I've seen in a long time, which is saying something because especially in America, our lawmakers are nothing if not lazy. Uh, and you, and that you was slipped to, into the budget omnibus bill, right? That so, was in the omnibus bill. So it was, you know, page whatever, 500,000 of the bill. Uh, it, but, you know, that had been discussed for a while. You know, Frank Pallone, a representative from New Jersey, had been interested in doing something like this for a long time. Uh, it's just one of those splashy headline uh, pieces of legislation that makes everybody feel really good. They don't actually think about the consequences to their constituents to America, to the economy. You know, we're talking about, isn't USPS in trouble? Don't they need business? (laughs) And they're just giving up a huge, a huge business in the U.S. Right. And so just to be clear, then Republicans own uh, this legislation as much as the Democrats do. Yes, absolutely. They they could have stopped it. They could have tried to get it removed. I, I understand with the omnibus, it's it's there are a lot of other, you know, people have bigger top line issues that they're concerned with. But unfortunately, this is what has always happened with vapor products as a political issue is that it's nobody's top issue except for one crank, you know, from New Jersey who has a, you know, bee in his bonnet about it. And so everyone else just says, well, I don't really care that much. So I'm not going to fight him on this. I'll vote. He'll vote for my thing later if I'll do this. And only, you know, 2% of my constituents care about it. So I'm just going to let it slide. And that's how you end up in a situation where we have bananas like a bananas combination of of drug laws where cannabis you can get it on you know brownie form gummy form uh you can get cannabis pies and you get it shipped to your house and you can get liquor you know whipped cream with liquor shipped to your house but adults who are smokers who have been using vapor products for years to stay smoke free are now being treated like the devil and forced to do the long march to wherever they can go to get whatever specific vapor product they want, which, you know, I don't know if lawmakers even understand the just exuberant variety of, of devices and flavors, but also how specific people's tastes are and needs that someone may like a device and a liquid or a couple of liquids and none other. And that liquid and that device is not available anywhere in their state. And that person is just out of luck now. On a uh, political history side, uh, if anybody's ever heard the term line item veto, and that used to be a power that the president had, and it's now been taken away, 
that you kind of want that line item veto back because then the president can just go through a budget bill and go, nah, not on that one. Yeah, I mean, there was virtually no way that that would be because it was, the budgeting process in the U.S. is always so contentious and such a pork fest, you know, that as long as people get the pork they want in it, they're not going to fight really hard on anything because they can just throw their hands up and say, we did what we could. What did you want us to do? Not give anybody COVID relief or have the government shut down? This is what it's, this is honestly what Democrats have been doing with cannabis for decades is so many of their constituents have been saying, legalize it. And they're saying, well, these Republicans, we just can't seem to get it done, or we needed to do something better. Or what just recently happened was, well, Republicans actually supported a bill that would would decriminalize cannabis, but it didn't explicitly have a tax for the federal government. And it didn't have requirements on, um, you know, racial requirements on who can own a license to sell and all of this. So they're like, so we're just going to torpedo that one, even though it would have, it would have been a band-aid. Uh, but it would have stopped people from going to jail, which they say they care about. So, you know, yes, Republicans uh, uh, deserve a significant portion of the blame for the situation that we're in. Now, what about um, President Biden and his picks for HHS and FDA and so forth? I mean, are we seeing any bright light there or is it or is it dead silence? And is that worrying? Yeah, I mean, if you honestly, there's really only one pick that's pretty bad for for vapor, and I think generally for for the public health issue overall, which is uh, Xavier Becerra. He's you know he's a political creature. He's been in Congress for a while. He's a lawyer. He's no background in in medicine, in public health, and he's very agenda driven. He seems to be able to use whatever platform he has for whatever specific agenda he has, uh, not necessarily doing the job that he was put in there to do. And frankly, it's worrying to me because uh, we all watched Biden when he was running and Biden and many of them say, I'll follow the science, I'll follow the science, I'll follow the science. We trust the science, believe the science. Like, okay. And we just went through this big nightmare of COVID, still going through it uh, because our health systems were unprepared because their priorities have been messed up for a really long time. Their resources have been going to the wrong things. And I was hoping Biden would, you know, hoping against hope that a politician would actually do what they promised to do on the campaign trail. And then you have one of his first suggested appointments is Xavier Becerra to HHS, one of our most important health agencies in the U.S. And he has no background in science. You know, Republicans have been talking about all these other things. I think the main thing is that he has no background in health and hasn't really shown much of an interest in it in his career, uh, he's a political creature and very problematic to me, not because, not because of his positions, but the fact that he's agenda driven at all. I think in these positions, in these health and science positions, somebody really needs to at least pretend, at the very least, they really need to be committed to pretending to be objective and to not have an agenda. And that is not this person. You know, the other nominees, the, the acting FDA director, I think is uh, Janet Woodcock, I think she, she um, and you have Sharfstein and some other people. Most of them are just lifetime bureaucrats. And that's, you know, we can work with that. They're not agenda driven. They're not ideological as far as we know. They have no connections to Bloomberg, but you never know. You, it's really one of those really just hope they're fairly objective when they get in. Uh, you know, you could end up with uh, with what we had during the Trump administration with Gottlieb, or you had someone who come in saying all the great stuff. Pretty, talking a really good game. And then almost the minute he gets in there, just 
180s and all of a sudden vapor products, maybe there are super dangerous epidemic that even though I said we're safer and could probably save lives, now I think they should probably be banned. Yeah, I mean, if if you're ever going to hope that an FDA commissioner is going to protect vaping, you just have to look at that moment in 2018 when then Commissioner Scott Gottlieb, you know, lit the world's hair on fire over the epidemic, so-called epidemic of teen vaping, and that it posed a clear and present danger to youth. I mean, the industry is never going to recover from that. Yeah, and I mean, a a lot of it obviously will never, unless unless Gottlieb decides to to write a tell-all, uh, honestly, I don't think we'll ever really know what happened there. But, but my theory is that it, it, these agencies have, you know, they have appointees at the top. But for the most part, they are comprised of lifetime bureaucrats. And that, that's, so that's a machine with programs rolling and rolling. One guy coming in with a different viewpoint isn't necessarily going to be able to or want to derail programs and initiatives that have been in the works for years. I think that's what happened is that that epidemic was a plan that the FDA had for years in advance. And when Gottlieb came in, they're like, here's the data, because they'd been working towards this for a long time and they had been planning out their advertising campaigns and their it's an epidemic campaigns, which came out a week after Gottlieb made that announcement. He wasn't gonna be the guy to be like, oh, you know, all that stuff, all that money you spent, all that time you spent planning, we're not gonna do that. So it just kept on rolling. And I think that's the way it always is. So. Yes, uh, uh, an appointee at the head of these agencies can can materially affect the conversation and the policies. You know, they can decide what's pri- what to prioritize and not, what to ignore. But for the most part, I think problems, the goods and the bads are, are all within those lifetime, those nameless, faceless bureaucrats who've been there for two decades, three decades. If you could um, give somebody, uh, one person in the United States, Ebola, uh, in order to help save the vaping industry, who would that person be? Um, I don't think I would do that to anybody. Oh. Uh, well, my, so um, I don't like to wish ill on people. However, in my most vindictive moments, the worst that I can wish on someone is that they will live long enough to see their legacy destroyed and everything they worked for fail. Uh, there is one person I could name where I hope he lives to a ripe old age to watch everything he has worked for completely crumble under his feet. Do tell. I think you could guess. Well, we will. We'll leave the name. We'll leave, has the person already retired? Quasi retired? Yeah. Okay. yeah, forcibly. Yeah. Uh, forcibly, right? Exactly. I think we all know who that. Uh, wonderful curmudgeon is. Well, Michelle, look, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today for the short piece on the U.S. and for the other appearances you've made around here. If you haven't seen yet the uh, the piece on Bloomberg, uh, if it's not out yet, look for it soon. If it has been coming out, go to RegWatch and find the Bloomberg piece. Thanks, Michelle. Thanks for having me on.